0: We return to our discussion on neoliberalism with Foreign Minister Guillaume Long of Ecuador.
1: But for sure, a key component of neoliberalism is the one that you've singled out, which is the fact that if you let unfettered market forces guide your production, then you essentially become a specialist. And in Latin America, specialization, economic productive specialization, has meant exactly what you said, becoming producers of one or maximum two crops in South America, uh, more than in Central America, you have also resource-rich countries in terms of minerals and in terms of oil, but essentially raw materials, right? So the history of Latin America, in fact, you know, not just the economic history of Latin America, but the political history of Latin America and social history of Latin America has been marked, punctuated, by boom and bust cycles in the prices of raw materials, when the prices of raw materials of commodities, if you like, are okay or even high, you know you get fairly successful governments. And but when the when the, the bubble bursts and, and, and the prices plummet. Then you get long waves of political instability, and uh, again, the growth of poverty, and inequality, all, all these things. So, one of the things that Correa said from the outset, and I think he was probably one of the members of the so-called pink tide. It's not a term that we use in Latin America, but it's used widely in the, in the English-speaking world of this of this wave of progressives or post-neoliberal governments. I think Correa was being the only economist president and an academic who had a PhD from Illinois, and uh, actually wrote about these things, about how to move away from monoculture and the dependence on, on, on raw material. He was very, very interested and had a big focus on planning the great leap away from this dependency on raw materials, but it's easier said than done, right? You need to invest in other sectors, but you need the right workforce for that, you need the right infrastructure for that. So. You need to have a careful planning strategy, and that requires a lot of public investment. The countries that have moved away from raw materials and gone into industry or knowledge economy and knowledge sector or services or high-tech, uh, essentially the only good examples we have the last decades are the East Asian economies, right? I mean, the uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, but more recently China, and they've all done it with public investment Um, and I think we were on the way you know 10 years is not enough to depart from 500 years because it's not just with the United States it was the Spanish monarchy as well When, when when Latin America was under Spanish and Portuguese rule Latin America's role was still to send either tropical products or minerals, right, gold, silver, so on and so forth. So so this is a very historical, you know, ongoing trend that you need to break. Unfortunately, of course, Moreno's abandoned state planning, Moreno's abandoned a number of the programs that are so important to be able to do this, what we call the change in the productive matrix. So there are key sectors, education is a really important one, higher education is a really important one. If you're gonna industrialize, you need the engineers, you need the workers, you need the vocational education as well for skilled workers and laborers. And so. so there were a number of things that we were doing very meticulously, that I'm afraid of being completely abandoned because, of course, the market will resolve everything, right? Mm-hmm. Except for the last 500 years in Latin America's history, the market hasn't really resolved our desperate need for development. So mm-hmm. it's, it's clear that you need collective action and a state that plans, that uses the market. The market's important. You can't start planning like uh, the Soviets used to do and every nut and bolt that you're going to produce. But uh, as always says, The market is an excellent servant. We need to use the market, but it's a terrible master, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that makes a lot of sense to me. It it seems like the wealth inequality is such a big factor so that you have governments that either promote that or they try to rein it in through proper taxation and, and those types of things. It seems like these countries... When we talk about the ones of the pink tide, for instance, in which all of these measurably great advancements occurred for the majority population, a lot of that also had to do with just enforcing existing tax types of policies or creating more stringent ones. But more than anything else, it was to, as you say, have a, a, a tax base to, to do those types of investments from the state level on behalf of the interests of the majority of people. In in this piece on the progressive international, I wanted to circle back again to this concept of lawfare because first of all, the allegation which seems to be sound is that there are people, and it's not just in the Ecuadorian situation but we saw it in Brazil and and in uh, Bolivia And basically, the electoral authorities are using claims of of making certain candidates and certain parties illegal or not eligible to run. And I guess from a legal perspective, international law perspective, I mean, you can get a lawyer to pretty much argue any position. So it's not a matter of that there's not a position that's being argued here. It's just that the weight of the evidence doesn't support, at least what I've come across, the claims that have been made here. And based on our media, at least here in the U.S., we are never aware of that. We are just kind of told that people did illegal acts, therefore they are not eligible. Can you walk us through the current situation in Ecuador, whether you find that there's any justification for like the former vice president, I think, was incarcerated, as well as the actual elimination from actually still pending in court with the political party, different parties being, I think now there's five or six that have been deemed not eligible to run in Ecuador. But really importantly for me is Brazil. Uh, because Bolsonaro is a is a very scary person and leader and the claims that were made against Lula in the same way and his incarceration and his appeals to, to fight those charges and ultimately be removed from the ability to run for president or vice president, whatever his interest is, this kind of lawfare approach result. Can you fill us in on the details as best as you see them from a more informed position?
1: Yes, sir, I, that's Exactly right. I think it's important to to understand that the return of the ride in Latin America has been a regional phenomenon, it's actually since the commodities decline, what we were just talking about. In you know, 2014, 2015, the prices of Latin American raw materials went crashing down. It complicated things for... Uh, all the governments that were in power and because we had a majority of leftist governments it complicated things for them and you know there was some political fatigue you know when you've been in government for in the case of uh, the pt in brazil 13 years the kirchner's in argentina also 13 years in case of rafael correa 10 years and there was some understandable fatigue people want change and in some cases as in argentina They voted right-wingers in. In other cases, nobody voted. It was just coups. But, you know, in some cases, they actually voted right-wingers in. But as soon as these right-wingers started carrying out neoliberal reform, people realized that what they had before needed to be salvaged, needed to be protected. And so we actually saw, for example, last year, you probably saw this on the news, there was some coverage in the U.S., a huge wave of anti-neoliberal protests in several Latin American countries, including Chile, Colombia, Haiti, Brazil. But also in my country, Ecuador, the biggest protests in contemporary Ecuadorian history, certainly in my lifetime, my generation, you know, uh, which were brutally repressed. Eleven people died in the protest. You know, fifteen hundred people were detained. There were uh, thirteen hundred. Uh, injured people, um, several hundred of them, uh, very seriously so, with loss of eyes because they were, uh, you know, the, the tear gas was shot in their faces it was actually probably uh, the order was given. Now, lots of people lost eyes, you know, too much to be a coincidence. So, you know, so that that's the response of people in power. But because people on the streets are not happy with neoliberalism, of course, when there's an electoral outlet, when there's an election, where there's a possibility to change things, people are voting for the left for the progressives for the whatever you want to call them the ones that are not in favor of the neoliberal program and so this means that of course if someone like Lula would have run in the elections in Brazil he would have won And all the polls uh, gave him as a a winner against Bolsonaro. Uh, This means that if Correa was physically in Ecuador and able to do politics in Ecuador within the democratic rules of the game, or be a candidate or support his candidate, but just being physically in Ecuador and being involved in Ecuadorian politics, you know, we would win. We're probably going to win without him anyway. So this has this takes me to lawfare. I mean, this has been one of the ways in which political power. Right wing in Latin America at the moment has tried to stop historic leaders and progressive parties from returning to power is by uh, orchestrating what a kind of judicial coups in a way by controlling the judiciary and by uh, carrying out these huge court cases often hand in hand with some very pro-elite and media so that it has political repercussions and that there's a real scandal and there's a real narrative to it. And, you know, this is the, this is the new lawfare. I mean, it, it wasn't invented in Latin America. There's always, you know, there's always been a judicialization of politics. It's happened throughout history. It's happened, actually, the term was invented in the United States, lawfare, it's a play on words, you know, legal warfare. It's uh, an English term. But it's not a coincidence that Every single leftist movement in Latin America, particularly the ones who have been in government, are now being victim of a level of judicial persecution, unprecedented, never seen before in our history.
0: And and let me interject something here, if I could, because this is profoundly the definition of undemocracy, being undemocratic, right? In other words, you are usurping the will of democracy you're basically acknowledging that we can't let these elections go uncontested or the right people will not be in power therefore we have to manipulate the field i mean i'm not suggesting people are actually saying those words but their actions are creating the conditions in which that is the outcome so i don't know if you can pivot at all to no matter how complicated people might think venezuela issue is for instance the idea that we would recognize Juan Guido as the president, the interim president, because he self-proclaimed it as a National Assembly leader. And I don't need you to get into all the technicalities of it, but that was clearly in violation of the Constitution of Venezuela. Specifically, Article 233 and the contorted misinterpretation of it by Wiatto and his allies, including the United States. I mean, as I've read and understood it and looked at a number of critiques of that, yet just by the stroke of whether it's Pompeo or the U.S. president or U.S. power structure indicating that he is the president, they're able to take all of this money in gold that and freeze it, you know, in uh, Venezuela. De- I mean, it's it's it is under this veneer of alleged legality that's illegal unless you basically have the last word, which I guess the most powerful nation of the hemisphere has, namely the U.S. Apparently, that's another example of lawfare. We can't vote you out through elections, through referendums. We can't coup you out. Despite our millions of dollars of investment into the internal affairs of Venezuela by the United States Agency for International Development and other associated NGOs, we can't sanction you out despite the harm that's created. So what's left in the toolbox? What other tools of violations of sovereignty of the internal affairs of a country's government we don't like do we have in the toolbox? Can you speak to that as well a little bit? I mean, I know that's a little bit different, but it's the same type of influence into the internal affairs of another country by by the manipulation or interpretation in a way that that you're directly benefiting from, uh, na- name, namely, you know, western Western investment capital, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think it's a, an international form of lawfare in the case of Venezuela, uh, whereas. Uh, probably in the persecution of Correa and Lula and others, we were looking more at domestic forms of lawfare. Certainly, in the case of uh, Venezuela, it's a clear case of you know of recognizing a self-proclaimed government so as to be able to hold it as the legitimate representative of a country in elsewhere you know, to be the to have to exist uh, legally to be the juridical representative of the state in the United States. So it has all sorts of legal implications. And you're quite right. It has to do with the freezing of assets. It has to do with the sanctions regime. It has to do with CEDRO. It has to do with people in London. Yeah, I mean, all this really is a much more sophisticated form of authoritarianism. Latin America came from authoritarianism in the 1960s and 70s, which was a military authoritarianism. It was pretty blunt. Uh, it was in the context of the Cold War. It, has, it had strong ideological, anti-leftist, anti-progressive, anti-democratic, obviously anti-communist uh, discourse and, and, and ideology. Um, but actually, we're back in this kind of Cold war climate. You know, should you listen to Bolsonaro, if you listen to Daniel Moreno, if you listen to a number of people on the right in Latin America, they really sound like they've got that 60s, 70s discourse, kind of neo mccarthyist sort of discourse. And so it's not the military this time round, although there are some sectors of the military that play a s run a role that's not that needs to be clarified. But the key actor isn't the military anymore, right? This is the military the military is not right now the ones uh, taking control of states or uh, organizing these coups. I mean, they, they have participated. Bolivia is a good example where the ministry strongly suggested that Evo Morales should resign. Uh, that's that's, I mean, that's the that textbook definition of a coup in the military when your high command says maybe you should resign, Mr. President. I mean, that's really, uh, I suppose, as a coup, but it's like, uh, media outlets in this country. In the United not it that way. But beyond that, key actor is not the military one, it's the judiciary, it's the judicial branch. If yeah. you can control that, if you can control key sectors of it, uh, sector of it. If you have an attorney general or a prosecutor general, depending how it's called in different countries, that responds to you, and then through all sorts of various forms of litigation, make sure that you get the right judges uh, dealing with the right court cases. Yeah, in the case of Correa, well, it's unbelievable. He, there are two ways that they're trying to block uh, progressive leftists in participating in the, February, in the upcoming February elections. The first is by banning the party, which you've rightly mentioned, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, international solidarity on that front and denouncing it. You were talking about the uh, Progressive International writing to the High Commissioner Bashley at the UN, and there's yet yeah, it's, it's an ongoing battle. The second is by barring Correa himself, and they've had to do with this. It opened 30 criminal investi- investigations, 30, and they, none of them led them to anywhere. And finally, they found one that they could actually try an abstention because Correa lives in Belgium, where his family lives. He didn't flee to Belgium. He left to Belgium as soon as he left his presidency, he, long before his legal problems started. Uh, he denounced all along that he would go to Belgium, uh, but anyway, he lives in Belgium, so they had to try him abstent in abstention. To, to try him in abstention, and only certain cases can be tried in abstention. In any event, they found an advisor, a former Correa advisor, willing to say that she'd received bribes and that Correa was aware of it and that this was fair legal campaign financing. And, and she, the, the only evidence was a little notebook that she wrote. Well, she wrote it in the present tense, saying, "Today I received." So, uh, from such and such such an amount of money all the way you know really precise down to the exact cent except it transpired that this notebook that she claimed she'd written in 2013 2014 the physical notebook the notebook itself was printed in 2018 so she had to, and this, this the notebook is written in the present tense right today i received an then she'll write checked, you know as if as if in real-time accounting, you know, she'll, she'll check it as if she's handed the money over to the right person. You know, it really looks like a real-time accounting a diary. And so she now she claims that she wrote it from memory in 2018 on a 45-minute flight between Quito and Guayaquil in Ecuador. And this was accepted as evidence by the court. And it's mm. on the basis of this evidence that they landed him an eight-year Jail sentence, right? This is the level of the crudeness of the control that mm-hmm. they exert on the judiciary, and how you can ban Correa. First, he can't go to Ecuador because he has an eight year jail sentence if he lands in Ecuador. And secondly, he's, he, they've taken away his political rights for 25 years, which essentially means he cannot be a candidate for 25 years, which, you know, he's, probably, he's in his late 50s. This means you know, the rest of his political life fundamentally, right? So that's really important to understand. Now, the new forces of reaction and the new coups, the new pro-status quo, pro-elite forces in Latin America are essentially the the judiciary and the the control that the political power and the executive branch has over a non-independent judiciary. And, of course, an independent judiciary is a fundamental pillar of democracy. If you don't have that, you simply there's no democracy.
0: Right. And and not only that, it it's something that we've talked about on this show a lot, which is not just the abandonment of reason, of reasonably trying to interpret the facts on the ground, but also just the abandonment of due process. You know, due process is a very rich legal term, you know, which means that yeah the defense has every right to examine all evidence that's uh, alleged against them and these types of things and presumed innocent until proven guilty, et cetera, et cetera. But but just like you're saying, I mean, people can, you can use the judicial system. You know, we saw it in this country where even when you're looking at grand juries, uh, you know, indictments, indictments are what? They are allegations, but somehow they get transformed into you're guilty. You know, it's, a, it's the whole judge, jury, executioner all rolled up in one. And so this apparently is the newest form of a evolution of different types of interventions that are at the disposal. And that includes not a free press, but a co-opted press that fails to explore dissenting opinions, that, that fails to to seek out and to include dissenting opinion and evidence that may support dissenting opinions, and, and, and lastly, I just wanted to add, you talk very eloquently about connecting the history of the region to the current and going back and forth. And it seems like I think of this guy, Elliot Abrams. You know, this guy is a monster and he is back and he's been back in the administration Donald Trump after spending, you know, those ten years in the '80s during these brutal Central American issues, there. So when you kind of look at the names of these people and these actors too, it should raise, if you have a historic acumen of any level, it, it should raise so much concern. Of course, that's separate from what we're talking about, but you know, you have these eloquent names of offices. That always include the word democracy and human rights. And then you got Elliot Abrams name in front of that. It's pure insanity or whatever. Well, let me ask you one more thing. We only have you for another minute or two. But I did want you to put into perspective then for us with the upcoming elections that are upcoming in Ecuador in, in, in what 2021? Is that both parliamentary and presidential elections that are coming up? Right? Yes. And so, what are the prospects? I heard that there was a reversal by an electoral judge suspending the party, Fuerza Compromiso Social, from the register was judged illegal removing them, but that is not a final. I think that's even appealable, right? That's right. Can you give us a heads up of where we're headed there?
1: Yeah, so both aspects are still unresolved. The first being whether Correa will be able to run or not, because... He was landed this eight-year jail sentence back in April, but the, it's pending appeal. And uh, in Ecuador, until the appeals process has been exhausted, the sentence is not, uh, cannot be fully. Executed. So, you know, the registration of candidates for the February election, the presidential and parliamentary elections, will take place next February. The registration of candidates is in September. It starts on the 18th of September. And if the appeals process hasn't been exhausted, in the case of Correa's court case uh, of uh, sentence, Correa could could, be, could still be candidate because there's a presumption of innocence. So. Yeah, you know the club is ticking. This is the fastest, the process person for in the history of Ecuador's uh, <laughs> justice system is really amazing. Right in the middle of COVID, when they've all the court cool cases, this is the only one that's going forward and it's going really fast. But uh, you know, it's still uncertain whether they'll, they'll make it for the 18th of September. And then all it takes is an honest touch to say, I won't do this, and the whole case can crumble. That's for Correa. And then for the party, you rightly said, The decision of the electoral authorities to uh, take the party off the the register has been cancelled by a judge, but this itself is a decision that is being appealed right now by the electoral authorities. So it's an ongoing battle, and of course, the problem is uh, you know even if we win this battle, you arrive at the elections debilitated because you've spent all the time fighting that battle and. While whilst you're banned and before you appeal, you can't do political activities, you can't do gatherings, you can't do internal primaries, and your party. You know, it's it's a way. It's a win-win for them because even if they lose in terms of having to let you run, they still made sure that they've really debilitated you, taking your attention away from the important things stopped you from campaigning. Uh, you know, in the in the months leading up to the elections, but. You know, the polls are very good for us. I mean, I'm very optimistic that, you know, if there's even a tiny, uh, you know, inch of democracy, you know, they, they, the chances are you'll have a progressive back in power in Ecuador, and I would argue in other parts of Latin America in the coming months, in 2021, certainly.
0: Very good. Well, Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for making time to speak with us. I'm not sure to call you Mr. Foreign Minister or... Mr. Ambassador or Mr. Historian, <laughs> but thank you very, very much for for your time with us today. There is a op-ed that I understand that you are in the process of getting published. Do you mind sharing where that might be? Or um, I guess we can let our audience know at a later date, but let us know. Yeah, you- maybe
1: it's, Maybe it's uh, better to, to to make sure we publish it first, and then as soon as I know, I'll will let you know. And you a, that that you.
0: sounds good. I was looking at it; It's very very informative, and and I think um, you know these are the things that we need to study up on as U.S. citizens. We need uh, it's an obligation for our for us to keep our government in check, because uh, if we don't do it, you know, no one else can. But. Um, thank you so much for your work and for your time. It's been my great pleasure having you on, and we, we would love to have you come back on at a later date. So thank you so much.
1: No, with pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: Okay, very good. What an outstanding analysis by Guillaume Long of the Center for Economic Policy Research in Washington, D.C., Mark Weisbrot's group up there. Uh, If you are interested to try to discover how the world really works from an economic perspective, a resource worth looking at is the Center for Economic Policy Research. Please stay tuned for our overnight broadcasting, which comes up next. You'll have to switch on over to our internet at koop.org. So join Tim for nobody's happy hour. We take you out as we do every night with Land of Naivety.